Welcome to Courage in Healthcare, a podcast sponsored by Maxworth Consulting Group. I'm your host, Kyle Worthy. COVID-19 has altered our world in many ways. Members of the healthcare community have overcome unforeseen challenges and, in the process, have learned a lot about what it takes to see their patients and their practices through a worldwide pandemic. In our next few episodes, we'll be speaking with providers about the outbreak. We'll discuss the setbacks they've had to handle, the lessons they've learned, and what the future might hold for healthcare and physician practices. Today, we speak with Dr. Arun Mbarka Shabra. Arun and Barka share with us their experiences of navigating the pandemic both as a family and as healthcare providers. We discuss the financial impact the virus has had on healthcare organizations, what physicians can do to better prepare themselves and their communities for outbreaks in the future, and how they've handled the challenges of the pandemic together. Well, thanks so much for being with us here today. Uh, why don't we start off by having you guys tell us a little bit more about yourselves, your specialty, and maybe uh, your practices. Sure. So uh, I'll go first. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my name is Arun Shabra, and I'm a neurologist who subspecializes in stroke or vascular neurology. Um, so I have a couple of different hats that I, you know, kind of wear in terms of how I practice. Uh, my f- main focus and primary area of practice is in the Fredericksburg, Virginia area. Mm-hmm. I'm the stroke medical director at Mary Washington Hospital. I've been the stroke mm-hmm. medical director there for a little less than four years, and I predominantly do neurohospitalist inpatient work about 90% of the time, and I do about 10% of work in the outpatient, and then I also mm-hmm. serve as the medical director for the stroke program, um, whereby I kind of go over different stroke protocols and you know make sure we're meeting the proper metrics and make sure that we are improving the care for our stroke patients in the community. Um, as a secondary uh, job, I also do a lot of telestroke services, kind of on a moonlighting type mm-hmm. um, schedule. So mm-hmm. typically I pick up shifts uh, anywhere from four hours to 12 hours um, a day, you know, at random times during the month. And I evaluate acute stroke patients in the emergency room pretty much across the country. Um, the company that I work for kind of get different, diff- gets different licenses for me in different states and gets me the privileges and I just evaluate and manage the acute stroke patients. Um, so that's kind of the second thing that I do. And my third um, uh, position or role is I work part-time at a um, academic medical center in Galveston, Texas. Uh, currently, oh, wow. okay. yeah, currently my wife is finishing up her uh, pediatric orthopedic fellowship in Houston. Mm. So I'm doing a uh, part-time stroke faculty role in Galveston. So kind of do three different things at this moment. And that's kind of a little bit about my practice and, you know, how I am, um, you know, treating patients. I'll let my Mm. wife go now. So um, my name is Barka Shabra, Arun's wife. Um, I am currently finishing my pediatric orthopedic fellowship. So I did, I did five, I did a orthopedic surgery residency and now I'm in a fellowship for pediatric orthopedic surgery it's one year. Um, I am joining Shriners um, Hospital for Children, uh, Texas. Um, mm-hmm. And particularly, I have an interest in scoliosis and spinal deformity, but I do treat um, all kids with disabilities, um, neuromuscular disorders. Um, and yeah, that's my interest. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you guys will have a, a kind of a wide 
breadth of uh, insights, uh, being in two different locations, and of course, being a family uh, makes it what we're going through uh, yeah. a little bit interesting and extra hard. So, um, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit uh, about uh, maybe the communities of where you are practicing. If that would be, I think that would be helpful for us. Sure, sure. So. Um, I'll just kind of keep it to the two, my two main um, mm-hmm. things, which is, you know, Fredericksburg, Virginia and Galveston, Texas. So Fredericksburg, Virginia encompasses a huge catchment area. It's um, about halfway between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia. Um, so being right in, in the middle, you know, we have a huge catchment area of patients and population. And over the years, many people that work in the D.C. area tend to move south mm-hmm. and Fredericksburg has expanded over the last, you know, 10, 15 years uh, to really be kind of an, an end attachment of the Northern Virginia, greater Washington, D.C. area. Um, so it's a big catchment area. We see a lot of stroke patients. Our hospital is very, very busy um, and we serve a huge, huge population. Mm-hmm. And um, not only do we see a lot of patients, but, you know, over the last five to 10 years, um, the people in the area have become a lot more educated. Um, mm-hmm. um, now, the second community that I work in is Galveston, Texas, and that is more of a beach town. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am uh, working at an academic center at University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. So mm-hmm. it is a comprehensive stroke center as opposed to Fredericksburg, which is a primary stroke center. So at the comprehensive stroke center in Galveston, we don't have as many day-to-day patients but we have a lot more challenging cases. So a lot more patients that require higher level stroke care, um, specifically requiring certain procedures that aren't necessarily offered at community hospitals, which um, my hospital, Mary Washington Hospital in Fredericksburg is. So it's a little, I see two different aspects of it. You know, the primary frontline stroke center and then the comprehensive stroke center in Galveston, where I'm seeing the more complex uh, stroke patients um, that require a little more care. So you know, we, we don't see many people coming in through the emergency room as I would in Fredericksburg. However, we see a lot of transfers that come in, you know, uh, in the surrounding community, probably, you know, encompassing about um, a 30 to 50 uh, mile radius from, from Galveston. So um, currently in my fellowship, I've spent six months at Texas Children's Hospital. It's um, the third largest children's hospital in the country. It's a huge mm-hmm. private practice clinic. Um, so, um, had a lot of patients, saw a lot of diverse, um, pediatric orthopedic, um, issues, including sports medicine. However, um, the last six months, um, and where I'm joining practice, Shriners Hospital, um, is a very different organization. It's, a, the, a true not-for-profit hospital. So, um, takes care of all children despite insurance status, um, funding is not an issue. Um, a large portion of children come from Mexico. Um, I don't have a percentage, but some days um, I'm having needing a translator for every room. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. even from um, I think like Louisiana, from all parts of Texas, um, we have patients if they need to be taken care of and they don't have the resources, we um, do the best that we can for them. So. Well, tell us uh, a little bit more about how the virus and subsequent closures have impacted uh, those communities uh, and and how you are practicing today. So um, I think for from my standpoint, as I do see a lot of hospital inpatients and a lot of stroke patients, 
kind of what the virus has done is um, very initially, you know, when things started getting rampant around March and April, hospital admissions were um, at an all-time low. Uh, two reasons. You know, one is a lot of the outpatient non-emergent procedures were canceled. But from my standpoint, a lot of patients were afraid to come to the hospital because, mm-hmm. you, know, it, you know, as I alluded to earlier, when you have a stroke, you want to get to the hospital as soon as you can so you can get life-saving treatments. Um, but these patients were scared. You know, they were scared because they didn't want to get virus and they kind of delayed their treatment. So initially we were seeing a lot of people not coming to the hospital and just kind of dealing with their stroke symptoms. And, you know, and oftentimes their stroke would get worse and they would eventually come to the hospital two to three days later after their symptoms began. But at that point it's too late and we can't really help them so much as we could have if we came immediately. Um, so that had a huge impact on, you know, seeing stroke patients initially. And then I think after about a month, um, kind of towards the end of April, early May, as, you know, people kind of got over that first initial shock of the virus, um, they started to kind of say, okay, well, you know, if I'm having a stroke or having these symptoms, I'll go about, I'll go to the hospital because, you know, I, I need to go. And the whole kind of um, shock of the virus kind of calmed down. But what we started to see is, you know, the hospital admissions pick up and stroke patients come more and often. But now, interestingly, what we're seeing is that there's a little reversal, whereas, and just throwing out numbers there, on average, before the pandemic, I would say, I would see maybe, you know, two to three acute stroke emergencies per day. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, when I say two to three acute emergencies a day, that doesn't account for you know, subacute emergencies, other types of neurological conditions. I'm purely focusing on stroke right here. Mm-hmm. So I see two to three stroke emergencies per day, whereas now I'm seeing about four to five. And mm-hmm. what I've noticed what's happening is a lot of patients, you know, because they're losing their jobs, because they're getting furloughed, aren't able to afford their medications. Okay. So mm-hmm. what's happening is they're not taking their medications to prevent you know, strokes from occurring. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you know, they're more likely to have their stroke. And then that's why we're seeing a huge influx of stroke patients now. Mm. So, you know, because the virus has in- impacted them economically, they've lost their insurance. They can't afford their medications. They can't take them, you know, for stroke prevention. And then, you know, they're coming to the hospital with these massive strokes, um, which is kind of a, um, a little different thing that we're dealing with. We were dealing with uh, in the beginning, you know, when they were just afraid to come in. So it's a little mm-hmm little different, um, you know, from the front end to the back end, but that's kind of what we're seeing now, um, in terms of my, my main practice. Um, so. Well, interesting. Yeah. So socioeconomic impact certainly is being felt in, in is spilling over into the healthcare system. Exactly. Exactly. Cause you know, what I do with primarily emergencies, so it's a little different, you know, I don't really see, see much of the outpatient side of things. I don't do mm-hmm. many, you know, elective procedures, uh, as my wife does. So I think, you know, we'll have a di- little different experience um, through the pandemic. But for me specifically, numbers have picked up, you know, greatly. And I think it's mainly because of these socioeconomic mm-hmm. um, disproportions that have occurred with people that have, you know, lost their insurance and lost their job. So and a, fo- a follow up question to that you mentioned earlier um, that you're involved with uh, and had been uh, previously involved with uh, a telehealth um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, company. Um, have you seen an increase in demand for those services and how has that gone? Uh, and do you see that as a solution? I think 
for for um, for treating patients or at least uh, communicating with them. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen a demand in those services pick up exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I will say that for my salaried position, so for example, the Mary Washington position, everybody uh, across the hospital had to take a pay cut um, because the hospital mm-hmm. itself. Um, you know, which combines everything from inpatient, outpatient, emergencies to elective procedures, you know, was at, was operating at a loss, you know, since COVID began. And we all had to take a pay cut. Mm. Um, however, um, with the telehealth, the um, we didn't have to take a pay cut for, you know, our shifts. And in fact, we're more busy on our shifts um, because, as I kind of mentioned earlier, we're seeing a lot more patients come in with uh, stroke emergencies that, you know, haven't been taking their medications, haven't been able to afford them. And um, we're, we're a lot more busy. And I will say for those acute stroke emergencies, which I, you know, that's how I work for the telehealth telestroke service is all, it's all acute stroke emergencies. Um, that first month of April was very light, you know, on mm-hmm. average, you know, I cover when I'm on shift, I cover anywhere from 15 to 20 hospitals at a time. And, you know, during a normal workday, let's say 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., um, before the pandemic, we'd maybe get about, I don't know, 12 to 15, you know, stroke emergencies, um, which I just evaluate from my, you know, laptop and, you know, make recommendations. Mm-hmm. Once the pandemic hit that first month, probably in a 12-hour period, we only had like three or four, you know. Um, and then now, you know, once things have kind of stabilized, and the numbers have started to uptick, we're probably seeing upwards of 15 to 18, you know, per 12 hour shift. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that specific aspect of it, you know, the numbers have increased, the demand has increased for sure. Um, but there's been no bearing on my salary, but, you know, for the other, you know, portion of it where, you know, you, you're employed by the hospital and albeit your, your numbers specifically and your, you know, the revenue you generate specifically for the hospital has increased you kind of have to take it, take the hits with everyone as a whole because, mm-hmm. you know, you're employed by the hospital. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Those, those are great insights. Um, yeah. and Barco, how, how about yourself? What's happening in Houston and, and how the closures impacted that community and how you're practicing um, in, in your hospital? Well, uh, in March or April, I think it was Governor Abbott who said um, all elective procedures had to be halted for several Mm -hmm. weeks. And Mm so our ORs at um, Shriners pretty much shut down. Um, Texas Children, again, um, they had an emergency room and they had ORs going for pretty much just er like um, urgent um, emergent cases only. Um, But we have to kind of start, it was the same, it's not necessarily the same thing as a stroke patient, but you, there's not all surgeries that can wait for a, a significant amount of time. There's a lot of things mm-hmm. that you have to watch. And if the risks of waiting, um, kind of uh, the window for optimal surgical um, treatment kind of gets passed, it could be more risky. And so when we started opening up, we actually kind of got really um, busy and backlogged. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, for PEDS, there's a lot of procedures that we do that are, um, kind of guided by growth of patients. And for instance, if you leave that instrumentation in too long, you can overcorrect kids. Um, Mm -hmm. And it became kind of a critical thing where we're trying to get patients back for these surgeries. But like I mentioned previously, a lot of our patients are from Mexico and far away places and the borders shut down as well. So all of these medical Mm -hmm. visas, um, that, that 
process got hindered tremendously. And we had several patients that are, we still need to bring back for procedures that are kind of getting borderline, um, very urgent to kind of perform at a timely basis. Um, and yes, we were able to schedule patients, but um, the cancellation rates were higher than normal because um, it would just be on almost like a daily basis, somebody wouldn't be able to come from that far because somebody else got sick or transportation issues or whatever it is um, related due to COVID. Um, the, it was just, I mean, in our clinics and in um, the OR, it just kind of was a very high cancellation rate. Um, we tried to switch to telemedicine uh, mm -hmm. and I know TCH did a lot more of that than Shriners. But mm -hmm. when you're working with patients, um, and it's not just Spanish-speaking patients, I mean, Vietnamese patients, and we have a translator a lot, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to do a good exam, especially in orthopedics, without being face-to-face. -face. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, we at Shriners, we really weren't really successful in doing a lot with telehealth. Some of the rehab has um, progressed to that. Um, but... Um, that's just more due to kind of just necessity. If the patients can't make it, we still really do prefer the patients to come in. Um, and then obviously, I don't know if you talked about this, but wearing PPE when you're working with kids, working in the OR, it just gets yeah. um, cumbersome sometimes, you know? And like mm -hmm. with children, we try to minimize fear factors, but when you're coming with a mask and these goggles and gowns, I mean, it's it's scary for them. And so that kind of also changes mm -hmm. your exam and how, um, how cooperative they are with just kind of um, working with you, you know? Yeah, that's great insights. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all these changes in these, um, what we're dealing with, what we're going through, uh, what you guys are going through have an emotional and mental toll to them. Um, can you speak a little bit about uh, that challenge that maybe you and your colleagues are facing? And I guess the unique situation that you guys are in being a family and how, and how things are going uh, with that. It's been, I mean, my first month or two, the residents got pulled. And so I was, technically on call for weeks at a time going in every day. Mm -hmm. Although, like I said, the volume did slow down a lot. Um, but it was, I mean, there was also a lot of time to just reflect and kind of catch up on many things. And you try to just for your mental health kind of do that. But at this point, it's like July. And since March or April, neither of us has seen a lot of family members and friends, just like mm -hmm. um, everybody else. And it just kind of wears off on you. Um, my husband's brother just had a kid. We haven't met the baby yet. Um, I personally don't feel comfortable. My parents live in California. His parents live in Virginia going back and forth and suspect, um, subjecting our parents to like our travel. And especially when we're still seeing patients mm -hmm. on a daily basis, they're doing a good job of social distancing. We're not. <laughs> and so um, even right now I'm thinking, okay, if I go back this weekend, I really want to get a COVID test before. Those are all things that kind of um, are important and keep you balanced. And if you can't really mm -hmm. do that, um, I think we found different things. We've gotten into lots of Netflix <laughs> and lots of cooking at home. Yeah. Um, and that's good. I like to cook and I've had more time for that, but um, it's just trying to make the best of a really miserable situation. Right. Just like everybody else. So. Yeah. Yeah. I will say for myself personally, when I do uh, spend my, you know, a couple weeks a month in Virginia, um, I stayed home with my parents. So that mm -hmm. was a lot different. I, um, what I would do is I would just, you know, literally sleep in the basement. Um, mm -hmm. I would get home, enter through the basement, take, take my shower, you know, clean up all my, um, all my, my cell phone, you know, wipe it down, wipe mm -hmm. out all, all the surfaces that I touched when I entered. And then I would take a nice hot shower 
And um, I really wouldn't go upstairs to see my parents at all, except for, you know, they, my mom would make, make dinner. So I'd go up and eat dinner and then I'd just head back down. Um, and we maintain our social distance and everything like that. So that was a little frustrating for, you know, myself and, and my parents. Cause normally when I'm working there, you know, we're really close, we hang out, things like that. But, you know, since uh, COVID started, that's been a little difficult um, mm-hmm. for, for myself and, and my family. Um, and and I think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, uh, you know, and I'm sure being in separate locations and having, you know, having to travel back and forth, uh, put an extra layer of stress on what you were going through. Cause we, there was a period of time we really didn't know, uh, what airline travel would be like, or if there would be airline travel, quite frankly, right. uh, that was, that had to be, uh, uh, stressful. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. It definitely was. Um, and then like my wife alluded to earlier with just the PPE, I mean, just going to the hospital every day and seeing, like, looking on your census, like, is there a COVID patient? Did they test positive? You know, mm-hmm. putting on the PVE, making sure you did it correctly. Is there enough supplies? Because you're not only risking, you know, your, yourself, but you're also risking the lives of your loved ones um, if you were to, you know, get COVID or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, going back to the emotional and mental challenges, it was, it was tough. It was tough. I know my both my wife and myself, you know, can't even imagine how it is to be on the actual front line. So, for example, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, She's an anesthesiologist and she has to intubate, you know, these mm-hmm. patients. So it's way more riskier for her than it was for me or my wife. So, you know, we can't even imagine, you know, the type of stuff that she goes through, but she would be very, very cautious. She was very, very nervous about acquiring the virus and things like that. And, you know, her, these other frontline workers in the emergency room and the ICUs, you know, I think they, you know, go through a lot more of the emotional and mental um, challenges than we do. Uh, we probably only you know, reach the tip of the iceberg, but they, they kind of go through everything that you can mm-hmm. even think of. So. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's great. Uh, in our few minutes we have left together, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, what kind of lessons do you think that you will carry forward uh, into this post COVID-19 world or, or to phrase it another way, um, how perhaps might your practice change and adapt as we move forward and what kind of uh, um, what could you share with other providers uh, some experience you could share with other providers that might help them what they're going through now so um, I think a lot of physicians have been really kind of uh, worked up about prevention and public health Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, I have my MPH as well, but I think that's something that's on all of our minds and um, something to keep in mind for things that are coming in the future. We don't know if there's going to be a COVID-25 and um, getting a hold of this sooner than later is um, obviously it's a lesson learned for every single person. I think in my practice moving forward, you always have to um, kind of prioritize and put a hierarchy to patients and their needs. But um, in this next year, immediately, and then the following year after, I'm going to really have to think about my order of um, who I'm signing up and for what. And then for certain things that may may be kind of elective, um, it's maybe a better idea to just hold off completely. If you don't know, you can bring them back for um, a complication or something. So Mm -hmm. I think professionally, those are the things, just other lessons, I think, just really valuable, spending time with your family and your friends. Mm -hmm. My cousin um, 
his wedding, one of my cousins got married, um, I think two or three weeks before the big shutdown. And it was a huge reunion. People came from India, from all over the world. And Mm -hmm. wow, we felt so fortunate to be able to celebrate that um, and have everyone there Mm -hmm. together. But um, really looking forward to hopefully being able to do that again for all my other cousins, you know, Mm -hmm. so... Yeah. And from my standpoint, um, I think kind of how my practice will change or some less looking forward is just, you know, even more so, you know, reliance on telemedicine and telestroke. Um, mm-hmm. I was already doing a lot of it anyways. And, you know, pre-COVID, the reason for telestroke and telemedicine was to have, you know, a neurologist, specifically a stroke trained neurologist, be able to evaluate patients in smaller communities where they may not have a neurologist um, because, you know, time is of the essence when you treat the stroke. So, you know, we were, I was already, you know, doing a lot of those things, but looking, going forward, even now, um, you know, even more of reason to do even more of that stuff, you know, a lot of, um, as I mentioned, I do about 10% outpatient work. And what I've kind of realized is, you know, the majority of that, I can just talk to the patient on the phone, see how they're doing, um, or just do a telemedicine visit with them and just kind of change medications and, you know, through, through the computer, you can get a pretty good neurological exam done. And um, I think, you know, more so, you know, what I would tell other providers too, is that you really can do a lot with telemedicine. You know, I have the benefit of doing a lot of it, a lot of with telemedicine before the pandemic, but, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I just, that's the one thing I could kind of tell other providers is that, <clears throat> you know, if you really need to see the patient, there, there are certain times we really need to see and examine the patient for sure. Um, but there are a lot of instances where, you know, it's not necessarily absolutely necessary and, you know, you can do a good evaluation through, you know, the phone or through the computer or the, through a telemedicine device. So um, I think moving forward, that's kind of a huge thing um, um, for not only my specialty, but, you know, all specialties around. Um, and I think the other thing I'd want to say, and I think, you know, most providers know this um, and can speak to this, but. I think a lot of, you know, the angst, um, the cases, the deaths from the pandemic, you know, could have been prevented if there was a more concerted effort, you know, nationally to kind of control uh, the virus and, you know, maybe be more um, aggressive, you know, with controlling the virus. So uh, something I would hope that we would um, learn in the future as a country um, would be just to, you know, when something like this comes up again, or, you know, there's a scare of a pandemic to start the social distancing and the, you know, wearing masks much earlier, you know, be proactive about testing and things like that. Cause you know, there are, there are still people, I mean, we live in Houston and before the governor kind of made the stay at home order again, a few weeks ago, you know, there were people, you know, out without masks in big groups, just like nothing ever happened. And, you know, it's hard for us as medical practitioners to um, see that because we know, we know science, we know biology, we know healthcare. And um, if there was some way to kind of, you know, convey that to the community or population in general, you know, that would be, that would be great. So what I've at least tried to do um, uh, with my patients is, you know, a lot of times when I see patients, they'll do the handshake or the encounter and I'll really enforce with them, you know, we shouldn't do that anymore. Um, And, you know, we should be practicing in such and such a way. And I think a lot of times when people aren't maybe wearing masks or aren't social distancing, when they hear it from a doctor, um, they're a little more apt to kind of do it. 
um, as opposed to hearing it from like the media and TV and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, that would kind of be my one maybe piece of advice to other doctors. Not not to say that doctors aren't doing that anyways, but just kind of you know doing that more than what we're mm-hmm. what we've been doing mm-hmm. already. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate your time and joining us and sharing your insights. Um, and I know this will be helpful for others to hear. And I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. It was uh, great being able to talk about it. And thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Courage in Healthcare. We look forward to sharing more perspectives on the pandemic from various providers in the upcoming weeks. If you or someone that you know would like to share your insights regarding the pandemic, please let me know. We'd be happy to set up a call. But until next time, I'm Kyle Worthy, and thanks for listening.